Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We started in this chapter last week and kind of kicked off a little bit of this, kind of the the part of the sermon that Jesus addresses the issue of prayer. And Jesus, in in this section of the sermon, has kind of moved from the, you have heard that it hath been said, but I say unto you, he moves away from that which those were meant to, to place uh, a renewed emphasis on the original intent, the original application of the law. We spent a lot of time covering all of those different things that he talked about. But now what he's going to do and what he's moving toward is an emphasis upon uh, doing what we do as unto the Lord and not unto men. We looked at that last week when it comes to the idea of um, almsgiving and prayer and fasting, right? He talks about that at the beginning. When you give your alms, don't do it to try to be seen. When you pray, pray in your closet. When you fast, don't do it with long, drawn faces so that people know that you're fasting, right? And uh, in the middle of that entire section that Jesus is kind of going through these things, um, he takes the opportunity to throw in some teaching about what uh, prayer is and is not. And when I say throw in, I don't mean to imply that it's not important. In fact, um, that's perhaps, this is perhaps the most important passage on prayer in the entire Bible. Um, every, you know, even without the rest of the sermon, it would still uh, demand our absolute attention to what Jesus is talking about here in these, in these few verses. Um, the importance of this passage is, is lived out both in the Scripture and in our Christian experience. Uh, in Scripture, the Lord's Prayer, as it's commonly called, commonly known as, is, is repeat, repeated in other places in the Bible. Uh, God didn't waste words. Every single word in the Bible is in there for a reason. And so if God is repeating himself, then obviously he has a reason to repeat it, and it, he sees it as something that's very important uh, to our spiritual lives. Um, Jesus had a very limited earthly ministry. He was only here for... 33 and a half years, his earthly ministry lasted three and a half years. That was it. I mean, three and a half years is not a long time. And so for Jesus to, to do his teaching and then to repeat himself uh, more than once, especially when it comes to this idea of prayer, means that it's very serious to us. It, it, it forces us to sit up and to take notice of what he's talking about here. Um, the Lord's Prayer is one of the most beautiful written expressions uh, that's probably ever been penned. And I, and I would say that probably, I mean, obviously the Bible has been printed by the millions and millions and millions of copies. John 3.16 is a verse that's very familiar to everybody. The Ten Commandments are familiar to everybody. But this, I, I, I can't say this for certain, but I think this is probably one of the most printed passages in the Bible. Uh, think about, I mean, where you see this all over the place, you know, the Lord's Prayer and, and everybody uh, when, and again, we're going to talk about this um, in just a little bit, but, but this whole idea of the Lord's Prayer reaches to the soul of what it means to communicate with God and what it means for God to communicate with us. Um, and in Luke chapter 11, you don't have to turn over there, but in Luke chapter 11, the Lord's Prayer is given there in response to the disciples' request, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus gives them this Lord's Prayer, as it's called. Um, it's absolutely key that we understand the context of why and how and when this prayer was given. Because I'll tell you what's happened. Uh, one of the great dangers in handling the scripture is to use it in a way that it was never intended to be used. And, and I, what I mean by that is there's a lot of doctrines that have been, um, that have been produced or developed or, or uh, whatever you want to call it, especially in other religions and, and things that have that have come about as a result of one verse taken out of context. Um, you know, the idea of, of, of baptism for salvation, the idea of, you know, baptism for the dead, and some of these other things. Uh, they take one verse, they take it out of context, and then they twist it to say something that it was never intended to say. And obviously the devil is the master manipulator at that. Then we look at that this morning in Sunday school with the idea of these cults that have taken these things. And, and the Bible even said in Matthew 11 uh, that, that even some of the very elect could possibly be deceived by the way that they twist these things and, and whatever else. And that's exactly what's happened with this Lord's Prayer, especially when it comes to the Roman Catholic Church. They've made the grievous error uh, when they made this prayer something that is nothing, that, that's nothing more than, than something that should be repeated over and over and over. And you know, h- how many times 
Um, have you read stories or heard stories of somebody who they're getting ready to die from some accident or something, and they, they, wanna, they want somebody to come over and recite the Lord's Prayer with them, you know, or read the Lord's Prayer to me, I'm dying, you know. Uh, and, and it is, it's a very beautiful prayer, but it was never intended to be something that was just repeated over and over and over. Uh, it was never intended to be just some mind-numbing mantra that brings out some magic qualities to it. That's, what they, that's, that's the way that a lot of people treat this prayer, though. That's why they'll carry it printed out with them in their purse or with them in a book or with them you know, in their pocket or whatever else because they, they treat it as if it's some magic potion. That's the, you know, all they got to do is pull it out and read it, and everything goes away. You know? uh, that's never in how this was intended. It was designed as an instructional tool to help the disciples learn how to pray. Uh, we know that Christ had the same intent when he included it in the Sermon on the Mount because he introduces it with this statement in Matthew chapter 6 and verse number 7. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do. They don't start there with the Lord's Prayer. They start in the next verse. But if they would back up one verse and look at that, they would realize very quickly that this was never intended to be something that was just repeated over and over and over. Don't use vain repetitions like the, like the heathen do, for they think that they, have the, that they shall be heard for their, very, for their much speaking. I mean, if that's not exactly what's happened with this Lord's Prayer, when people get up and just recite it and repeat it and read it out loud, I, that's exactly what they've done with this. And, and it's obvious that Jesus' intent was never for it to get to that point. This prayer is not just something that's to be mouthed. It's something that's to be practiced. And that's what Jesus was trying to get across. Look, let's look at what he says here in Matthew chapter 6, and we'll pick it up in verse number 8. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. After this manner therefore pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Jesus was a revolutionary, not a reformer. Um, I, I don't mean this in a political sense, but in a, in a religious sense. Who he was, what he taught, how he taught, how he lived, what he did, what he expected of God's people. There were revolutionary ideas in his day. Um, and, and this sermon is, is uh, such a perfect example of that. I mean, he just flipped everything on its head. Uh, Jesus was not just trying to reform their system. He was completely revolutionizing their system. This Jewish... Uh, Religious system needed to be drastically changed, and one of the things that he taught in his own time was the idea of Israel's uh, God as Israel's father. And we see that some in the Old Testament, that makes one or two passing references to Jehovah being a father, uh, but Jesus dwelt on it at great length. He says in John chapter 16, I show you plainly the father. That's what you know, Jesus was trying to get that idea across. He directly referred to God as the father. More than 40 times, he prayed directly to him about a dozen times, and, and obviously much more than that. We see times when he goes up into a mountain to pray, and it doesn't give us that prayer, but you know who he's praying to, and, 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 and there's a lot of prayers that Jesus prayed where he, where he specifically referenced God as his Father. Uh, the scripture is the revelation or the unveiling of God. Jesus was the Word. It says that very plainly in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so as such, he directly revealed to us who God is. And, and very wonderfully, we see that God is our Father. Now, obviously, God is not everyone's Father. God is the Father to those who have accepted him as their Father, Amen. accepted Jesus as their Savior, and God becomes their Father. John chapter 1 and verse 12, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become what? The sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, right? He, we become sons when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. He becomes our Father when we accept the gift that he's given to us. That's also made very plain in John chapter 8 and verse 44. Ye are of your father the devil. So there are some people who have the devil as their father, and there are some who have God as their father. Those who have accepted Jesus Christ are sons of God. They've accepted him as their father. And so tonight, I, I want to begin to break this prayer down into kind of, I guess you could say, bite-sized pieces. It's a pretty lengthy prayer. 
Uh, so we're only going to cover the first part tonight, and then we'll tackle the second part when we come together later. Brother Josh will be preaching next Sunday night, so we'll cover it the, the Sunday night after that. But the title of the message just simply comes from the phrase that, that Jesus gave us, after this manner, therefore pray. So we'll pray, and then we'll look at this tonight. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you for your goodness to us. I thank you for uh, the great example that you give us in the Word of God, and the great instruction, the teaching that we have from the Word of God that will help us to know exactly what we ought to do and how we ought to do it. And I pray that when it comes to prayer, that we'd be able to grasp these things tonight and understand exactly how we should pray. And God, I pray that you would open our eyes, give us that understanding, and that, uh, that you could move in our hearts tonight. Thank you for what you do for us, in Jesus' name. Amen. All I want to do is, is just kind of break down these, um, th- these verses into, into the specific phrases that we see and talk about each one of those, what it means to us in prayer. Uh, and again, uh, this prayer is not something that's there so that, oh, well, this is exactly what Jesus prayed, so this is what we need to pray too. He's giving us uh, a pattern, something that we can follow, um, not something that needs to be repeated, not meaning it, uh, not something that needs to just be quoted, but this is how you pray. Remember, in, in uh, Luke, this is what Jesus' response to the disciples was when they said, teach us to pray, and this is what he gave them. So he's not just saying, pray this. He's saying, here's how you pray. So the first thing we come to is our Father. What a privilege of having such a Father. Um, uh, I heard a preacher say once that, when, that, that, um, that you spend the rest of your life discovering what God did for you the moment you got saved. And, and, you know, the older I get, the more I see the spiritual wisdom of that statement. When I knelt on the steps in the back of the education building and accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, I didn't know exactly what had happened to me. I knew I was saved. I knew I was going to heaven. But then the rest of my life now I've spent learning exactly what happened to me when I did get saved, you know? If, if you had to know everything there was to know about the Bible, everything there was to know about salvation, everything there was to know about exactly what happened when you got saved, then nobody would ever get saved because we literally spend the rest of our lives getting to that point. But what a privilege to have such a father. Uh, one of the wonderful gifts that we got at salvation that I didn't fully understand then was the relationship of God as my father and me as his son. And by, by saying that, I don't mean to tear down my earthly father, your earthly father, uh, my father and I have a very good relationship. I enjoy spending time with him. Uh, but even the best of men are men at best. God, as a father, will never fail us. And um, um, David, you think about what David said in Psalm 23, the immortal psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. He was basically saying that, uh, that of all the shepherds to have, he has the best one. The Lord is my shepherd. And that's exactly what, what I think is, is being uh, gotten across here. Our father, of all the fathers that we could have, God is the best as a father. In that same vein, I say that all of the fathers, um, of, of all of the fathers to have, I do have the best one because God is my father. So we have that, that privilege of having such a father. But the second thing is we have the security of having such a father. Uh, I feel so bad. In fact, turn over to 1 John chapter 4. I feel so bad, and you know, you hurt so much for young people who grow up in a, in a single parent home where their father walked out, of the, walked out on them when they were, you know, a, a very young age or maybe even before they're born or their father ends up in prison or something like that. And uh, it, it's so incredibly damaging to feel that your father doesn't love you. And maybe he does, you know, or at least he would say that he does. Uh, but a father that's not in the picture, it's hard to say that, that he loves his children. And kids grow up knowing that and feeling that, you know. Um, but our F- Heavenly Father, no matter what we do, or, or for that matter, no matter what we do not do, uh, will never walk out on us. We have nothing to be afraid of, and we can rest perfectly secure in the fact that God, as our Father, will always be our Father, and He'll always be there for us. I mean, look at the prodigal son, Right? He came back, and, and we see that, I mean, that's just a perfect picture of, of somebody who runs off into the world and lives life, you know, following pleasures and, and, and following their own desires and everything else. And when you're ready to come back, the Father is there waiting for you. That's one of the privileges that we have, but that's the security that we have with God as our Father. First John chapter 4 and verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. 
But he, there's perfect love casteth out fear, and that's exactly what God gives to us, that perfect love. So as we kneel to pray through the Lord's Prayer, we should spend some time dwelling on those thoughts. Our Father, they're a great comfort um, to our souls, and that's what they were meant to be. Uh, but there's also, I think there's a wider application beyond just me as I pray the Lord's Prayer, and it, and it begins here. If I'm praying with someone else, we can draw together uh, we can draw deeper together in prayer because we're praying to the same Father, Amen. right? And that brings us together in our relationship. I talk about that all the time when I, when I talk. Well, I've mentioned it in here before, I know, but, but even when I talk to couples that are dealing with uh, uh, marital issues or whatever, I, I use it when, I'm, when I get ready to do a wedding and I'm talking about uh, you know, making sure that the relationship is established on the right principles and on the, on the solid rock and everything else. But if you take a picture of a, of a triangle and you put God at the top of that triangle and the husband and the wife at the bottom, you're going to draw closer together as you draw closer to God. And the same thing is true of prayer, not just between a husband and wife, but between uh, parents and children, between friends. I mean, as we bring our requests before God together, we're drawn deeper into that relationship with Him, and that draws us deeper together. That's one of the things that we have as a church when we pray corporately. We're coming together before God, and that draws us into that deeper relationship. Uh, what Ralph Waldo Emerson uh, defined home as the place that has to take you in when you show up there. And, uh, you know, I can't with confidence just go marching into any home that I want to on my street, right? Uh, I go back home to Indiana, and I can't just go, well, you know what? I'm almost there, but this house looks good. Let's go walk up into that house. You're probably going to get shot, you know? Uh, but my house, when I go home, they'll always take me in. And I don't have to go and knock on the door and wait for them to open it up. You just go right on in, you know? It's, it's your house. The same thing with the house that we live in now, you know? I can't just pick a random street, a random house on the street and go into it. They're not going to let me in there because they don't know who I am. I'm not their family. But my family, I can go and I can just walk right in and they don't get scared when I walk in the door. They don't, you know, wonder who it is that's there. They, they recognize me. They know me. We're family, right? And, and, and that's the same thing that happens when we come into God's presence. Anytime, anywhere, any request. Because God's my Father. And the rest of this prayer depends on those two little words. Because without those two little words, our Father, we have no guarantee of a hearing. But we're going to our Father, and He'll hear us. How precious it is to have God as our Father. Back in Matthew chapter 6, our Father, in the second part says, which art in heaven. And of course, in declaring this, Christ is in no way minimizing the importance of the omnipresence of God. He's not saying that God is limited to heaven, but instead he's magnifying the Father's position. Isaiah 66 in verse 1, Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. I mean, he's all powerful, he's all present, he's all knowing. Um, but, you know, uh, no doubt all of you have seen a, a statue of Buddha, right? Uh, I, I, I don't know if I could remember the very first time I saw a statue of Buddha, but I remember seeing a statue of him when I was pretty young, and just, I didn't know who that was or what it was, and I just thought, what a weird thing, you know? Here's this fat little guy sitting there uh, with, with almost no clothes on, you know? And here these people are praying to this statue as if it has some ability to do something for them, right? Uh, God is, contra contrast that with the image that we talked about of God on his throne, with all of the thousands and thousands and thousands of voices being lifted up in praise to him and all of the, you know, the vastness of his, of his eternal home and, and everything else that's in heaven. I mean, contrast Buddha squatting in a, you know, on a rug somewhere and God in heaven. Boy, our Father, which art in heaven. Uh, in heaven, the Father has a lofty vantage point that he can use to observe my life. In fact, turn over to Psalm 139. Uh, maybe you've memorized these verses before. Father has a lofty vantage point from which to observe my life. Psalm 139, verse 1, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down, and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. That's a lofty position. The God who inhabits eternity thoroughly knows the entirety of my life. 
That means that, that when he directs my path, I would be well advised to follow what he's telling me to do, right? In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. When God directs your path, he's looking at it from a vantage point that is way bigger than ours, right? Think about it this way. Uh, if, you were, uh, if you were a puzzle piece, all right? None of us are, but if you were a puzzle piece, you, one puzzle piece just looks kind of weird, doesn't it? How does that fit in? You know, one puzzle piece is not much of anything else. But when you're standing back from the top and looking at that entire puzzle, one piece that's missing means a big difference between the whole thing being together and the whole thing just looking completely unfinished. Look, you can have a 5,000-piece puzzle, and if you had 4,999 of those pieces and one right in the center that was out, it wouldn't be unfinished, right? I mean, you would say the same thing if there was 3,000 out of the 5,000 pieces. That just doesn't look right. It looks unfinished. But one piece missing means that it's not finished, right? And, and, and that one little piece might not think it's valuable because it's so small compared to so many other pieces in that puzzle. But it's absolutely necessary for that whole puzzle to come together and make a complete picture. And that's exactly the way that God is looking at our lives. He's trying to put us into the place where he wants us to be, and well, it doesn't matter. It's just, you know, I'm, I'm insignificant when it comes to, you know, uh, the grand scheme of things, and I don't matter, and no, you absolutely do matter, and if you're not in the place where you belong, if you're not in the place where God wants you to be, then you are missing out on everything that God is trying to put together in this masterpiece that he's building, and God has this vantage point that he can see the entire puzzle. One little piece walking around can't see that, but God can. And that's the, that's the advantage that he has of being in heaven. It also lends great credence to the idea that his love is unconditional and his love is everlasting. After all, he already knows and, and has already known the worst about me and the best about me. And I tell you what, that's, you know, when it comes to this idea of God being able to see everything, he sees the bad he sees, you know, when we do things that are wrong, and he's going to judge us and punish us for that. But that also means that God sees the good, right? The eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil. That's usually where we stop. God's watching you. He knows what you're doing. You better not fail him. But it doesn't stop there. The Bible says the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. And that's the vantage point that God has because he is in heaven. But primarily when we say this phrase from the Lord's Prayer, my mind runs to the security of the Father's position and the hope that that security brings to me. Did you ever see a small boy, you know, and, and it depends on where it's at, but they get frustrated and angry. They're, they're, they're swinging wildly, at, at, you know. You see a picture, maybe, maybe you've seen it in a cartoon or a movie or something like that, and, you know, here's this little bad kid that's in a boy's home or something like that, and somebody's standing there with their hand on his head, you know, keeping him from doing anything. And here he is just swinging wildly, and he thinks he's accomplishing something, right? But here, here is this guy just standing here and letting him swing wildly, and nothing's happening, right? Nothing's being accomplished. Jackson liked that, that, that mental picture, I guess. Um, but that's the image of my mind when I think of this phrase. You know, the devil, with all his power, is nothing but a little boy. He's swinging wildly. He thinks he's accomplishing something against God. But in the end, God is the one that's all-powerful. God is the one that's in heaven. And for all that the devil is trying to do against God, he's just nothing more than a little boy swinging wildly trying to accomplish something that's not doing anything. Uh, he said in Isaiah 40, uh, 14, 13, For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit upon the mount of the congregation. He said that thousands of years ago, and he hasn't made any progress since then. Just nothing but a little boy swinging wildly, trying to do everything that he can to hurt God, and nothing's being accomplished. The book of Revelation, in fact, turn over to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. The book of Revelation, oh, Brother Josh already went there for me. Psalm 2 gives us insight into God's feelings on the matter of, Revelation reveals, the book of Revelation reveals that even when the devil unites people, in war against God and basically unleashes everything that he can against God, uh, he's powerless to hurt the Father. It says that in Psalm chapter 2, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, and the Lord shall have them in derision. 
You know, and I'm not trying to, to, to drive uh, the point home, but the same thing that you're standing there with this, this you know, this guy who is, who is much bigger than this little kid that's swinging wildly at him, and he can just laugh at him because, you know, he, he can't do anything to stop him. And that's exactly what God is doing in heaven. You know, here's the devil with all of his forces of, of, of evil and all of his power and all of his might trying to fight against God. And what does it say? He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. He's just laughing at him because he knows that the devil absolutely has zero power on his own. And the father is sitting in complete security on the throne of grace. And all the powers of heaven and hell cannot harm one hair on God's head. Nothing they can do against him. This world is wicked. It's getting more wicked every day. It's tempted to get discouraged and to give up hope. I mean, look at, look at everything for all the efforts that we're doing and in preaching and knocking on doors and everything else, it just seems like we're accomplishing nothing. Uh, and I'm not saying just as our, our church, but I'm saying nothing as a church, uh, as as a whole in the United States of America and across the world. You know, um, until you remember uh, the quote from Robert Browning's "Pippa Passes." You remember that uh, that poem that he wrote. He wrote this: "God's in heaven, and all is right with the world." And that's that's all we have to remember. He's secure. His plan is, is working perfectly. He's not being threatened. The wicked are not going to get away with the things that they think they're getting away with. The devil is not going to win in the end. Justice is going to be done. Our Father is in heaven. He says, Our Father which art in heaven. And then the third phrase is this, Hallowed be thy name. How sacred is the name of God? Uh, what is my response to these precious and sacred truths, um, you know, I, I have to praise the name of God. Hallowed be thy name. That's what he's doing. Our Father which art in heaven, and then he's praising the name of God. Hallowed be thy name. We have seen this far how entering into prayer in this manner just warms the heart and encourages the spirit. Uh, but now what we'll experience is what he says in Psalm 100, verse 4, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. You know, if, if I had to pick one of the biggest weaknesses that, um, that our brand of Christianity, independent, fundamental Baptist Christianity has as probably one of the biggest faults is, is that we would, uh, we, we have such a lack of praise, you know, we talk about praising God, and we talk about, you know, doing things for the glory of God, but there's such a tremendous emphasis in Scripture on praising God. And, you know, I think because we're conservative um, and because we, you know, we don't want to get, let things get out of hand, we miss out on opportunities to praise God in the way that He wants to be praised. Amen. Now, I'm not saying that we've got to be up here dancing around on the stage. I'm not saying that we have to add all the, the, you know, the drums and all of those kind of things. Those, those are not things that add to the praise of God. They take away from the praise of God. They add to the praise of men. They add to the people who are on the stage doing all that dancing and everything else. And most of the time, those people are doing that to lift themselves up, not God. But I think we miss out on opportunities to praise God in so many ways because of our attempt to be conservative and because of our attempt to... I mean, look. And again, I mean, you can take this way the opposite direction as well. But look, look what David did when the ark was coming in to the temple, right? David danced before the Lord, and even his own wife made fun of him and said, What are you doing? You're making a fool out of yourself. And who did God judge? David? He judged Michael, right? He judged his wife because she was the one that had a critical spirit against how David was praising the Lord. David was praising the Lord, dancing, which was something that was, you know, I mean, something that was usually done in secret, something that was usually done, you know, before the Lord, and that's it. But David was doing this in a public place because that's what the Holy Spirit was leading him to do, dancing before the Lord because of the excitement and because of the praise of God's name and because of what was happening in the, in the midst of them. Amen. And she criticized him, and God judged her because of what she did. I think we miss out on so much of an opportunity uh, to, to praise God. And, and I'll be honest with you, I think that praise is tied so often in the word of God to his names. Praising the name of God. How precious, uh, how sacred is the name of God, but how precious is the name of God. We have to pay close attention to the names of God. You think about it. 
Where did those names of God come from? God gave them to himself, didn't he? And if God gave those names to himself, then obviously he wants us to know about those names and what those names mean and, and what it represents about his character and what it represents about who he is. By the way, I've been looking into a lot of these, these names of Christ and, boy, the uh, names of God and the names of Christ, and the more I get into it, the more I get excited about it. After we finish up with the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to do a series on the names of God and just what they mean. But, I mean, it, it's, it's so important. God gave himself those names. And those names are tied to the praise that belongs to his name. And boy, if you could, you know, there's so many of them. Uh, uh, El Elyon, El Shaddai, Elohim, Adonai, Jehovah, Jesus. I mean, the, the list goes on and on and on of the names that God has given to himself. And we ought to be using those to praise him. Uh, we've spoken a lot about the Torah and in the Ten Commandments, this foundational Ten Commandments, we even find one of those commandments about the name of God. What does he say? Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Right? In the foundational, this Sermon on the Mount, we find a similar call to hallow God's name. That means that we ought to reverence his name. We ought to lift his name up. To hallow means to hold something as sacred. In other words, I'm to take the same view of God's names as he does himself. And God holds his names in a sacred place and in a sacred way. And we ought to be doing the same things. We ought to avoid uh, the, the expletives that you hear so often. Oh my God, people say that all the time, right? That's taking the Lord's name in vain. You see it now all the time in the, in the way that they text OMG. There's no difference. It means the exact same thing. Just because you're not saying it out loud, just because you're not, you know, uh, saying it at all, you're, you're putting it in a text or whatever else, it's taking the Lord's name in vain, and it's diminishing the name of God. Amen. Look, you know, uh, the Jews, the Jews go a different route. They would, uh, many of them refused to even write out the full letters of his name. When they were writing the, and, and you know, the scribes, as they were copying the, the books of the Bible, when they would come to the name Jehovah, it was so important to them that they would go and bathe, come back, write the word, and then go and bathe again before they continued on. Could you imagine in some of these passages where the name Jehovah is mentioned over and over and over again, how many times they would go and bathe and come back and bathe and come back and bathe and come back. But the name was precious to them. It meant something to them. And it ought to mean something to us. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I'm going to praise your name. I'm going to praise you for who you are. And there's still another aspect of this that's worth mentioning as well. In fact, you don't have to turn over there, but Proverbs 22.1 is a verse that you're familiar with. A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. By us being Christians, whose name do we have? We have the name of Jesus Christ. And a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. God's name is sacred. His name is important to him. His name is intentionally revealing of some of the awesome aspects of his character and he gives that name to us. We represent Jesus Christ. And I mentioned that this morning. But he's my Lord. And as his servant, I get to wear his name. Not that I have to. I get to. That's a privilege. But with that privilege comes great responsibility. To have God as my father and to be part of the family of God. Go back to Matthew chapter 6 if you're not already there. I'm sorry, I missed some of these things. Thy kingdom come. As a, as a dispensationalist, and that's something that, that I'm going to um, uh, do a lesson probably on a Wednesday night at some point about, but dispensationalism, uh, I think every one of you would agree that we are dispensationalists, whether you know what it means or not, I think you would agree with it, uh, but, I, but I believe that Jesus came to offer himself to Israel as her king, and obviously she ultimately chose to reject him and instead um, preferred to crucify Jesus Christ instead. Uh, and so in that sense, this idea of, of dispensationalism, the doctrine of the second coming is all about the return of the king. Amen. Jesus Christ came as a king to Israel the first time and they rejected him. He's coming back as a king the second time to take us back to home with him. Uh, but in, his, in, the, in the first time that he came, he was a suffering savior. But in the second time when he comes, he's going to be a conquering king. And that's what I'm looking forward to when Jesus Christ comes back. But there's also another sense in which this 
uh, his kingdom is, is personal and in which he is individually becoming king in our hearts and lives. Um, the best definition that I ever heard of the kingdom of God is the rule of God. In other words, when we pray, thy kingdom come, we're speaking about our heart's desire to have Christ rule completely in our lives. We're not asking God to come back necessarily when we say, thy kingdom come. We're asking him to take over and rule in our lives. He's going to come back. We don't have to ask him to come back. I mean, although it does say in Revelation 22, even so, come Lord Jesus. He is asking. He wants him to come back. He's looking for Jesus to come back. But in this sense, um, you know, I, I, I've, I've heard many a pastor refer to Christ as King Jesus. Uh, and that's what he used to be. I, I have a throne in my heart. And all too often, I sit on that throne myself. I don't belong on the throne of my life. God belongs on the throne of my life. And when I pray this prayer, thy kingdom come, essentially what I'm doing is sending myself packing and I'm putting God on the throne of my life where he belongs. Uh, that's not enough, however, because I also want him to rule in the lives of those around me. So I ask him to come, uh, his kingdom to come to my marriage his kingdom to come to my family, his kingdom to come to this church and to my friends and to this city. I want him to be the king of my home. I want him to be the king of this ministry. And, and as we pray this, we yield to him and ask him to soften the hearts of those that are around us. We ought to be praying that prayer for ourselves, but we ought to be praying it for everybody else that we know as well. Thy kingdom come. When I look at the wickedness in the world around us, uh, it, we just, it, it gets so frustrating. We get dismayed sometimes at the way that, that evil is called good and good is called evil. And, I mean, and, and that's exactly what you see happening over and over and over. Everything that we stand for, all the principles of the word of God is now being judged as hate speech and it's being judged as, you know, as, as disrespectful and it's being judged as, as um, uh, racism and, and all of these other things and bigotry and whatever you want to call it. Everything that's good is being called evil. And of course, when they're doing that, then everything that's evil is being called good. You know, uh, well, it's their life. They can live it how they want to. There's nothing wrong with that. Just let, you know, live and let live. Or what was that? What was the phrase that everybody was? Love is love, right? Love is love. They can love who they want to love. They're calling evil good. It's exactly what they're doing. And they're calling good evil. And we're living in a world that is so completely backwards and so completely messed up when it comes to these things. And what we're seeing is, you know, uh, everything that, that we love about God and the Bible is just being continually trashed by the world. You can bring anything you want to in a public school except the Bible, you know, you can bring anything that's offensive to anybody else, but don't bring in something that's conservative and don't bring in something that relates to God. You know, it's, it's I'm sick of the crime and the divorce and the abortion and the child abuse and the, and the liquor and so many things that are going. I, I was looking up some of the, um, by the way, this is, this is something that you might find interesting. I know some of you have seen it, but it's called like Worldometers or something like that. Uh, worldometers.com, and it's got like a running total of all of the um, all of the population of the world, uh, the actual population right to the second, the the number of births today, the number of deaths today, and and just I mean there's there it's all just on one web page, a complete running list. And I was looking at it last night uh, as I was preparing the message for this morning, and uh, it has the number of abortions, the total number of abortions. Um, year to date, it was like 27 million abortions. This is in the world. 27 million abortions. I mean, you think about how staggering that number is. We can say 27 million, but then you can break it down. I think I was looking at this. It was like 1230 in the morning. Um, I was finishing up on the message, maybe even a little bit later than that. And so it had actually gone into a new day. But by the time, uh, it, it was at 111,000 abortions for that day. 111,000 in one day. I mean, it's just amazing what this world is doing and what this world is coming to. And, and sometimes we get, you know, we get so fed up with uh, God's people and God's name being ridiculed and dragged through the mud and despised and insulted. And we just yearn for the day when Jesus Christ is actually going to come back and set everything straight. You know, I long for his kingdom to come, and we ought to be telling him that. And I, I mentioned that, but Revelation 22, verse 20, second to the last verse in the Bible, even so, come, Lord Jesus, we ought to be begging him to come. 
Uh, and 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 that's that's exactly what this this little passage right here is talking about. Turn over to Colossians chapter one. The next phrase that it says, "Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done." There's some people that say there's no sense in praying for God's will to be done because God's going to do His will. It's His will. He's going to do it, right? And and to a certain extent, I, I understand um, what. They mean when they say that, but I'm not a Calvinist. I believe that God graciously gives man a free will, allows him to choose uh, to place his faith and, and, and love in the Lord or not. Um, but I also believe that one of our primary goals in prayer is to ask God's will to be done. Jesus asked God's will to be done, right? I mean, look what one of the things that he said in the garden before all of this, you know, before his passion and all of that stuff happened where he was crucified and everything else, right? He said, nevertheless, not my will but thine be done, right? Of course, Jesus knew that God had a will. Jesus was God. He knew what God's will was and everything else. Why was Jesus asking for God's will to be done? Because God wants us to do that. Paul prayed that way specifically. In fact, look at Colossians chapter 1 and verse 9. He says, uh, for this cause, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. See, I, I long ago came to the conclusion that I cannot convince people of uh, God's will for their life. That's the Holy Spirit's work, and he has to do that work. Uh, you know, People come and, and ask for counsel and ask for advice, and I, I'm glad to give it where I can. I don't know what God's will is for your life, you know? God, I, it's hard enough for me trying to figure out what God's will is for my own life. I can give you advice. I can give you, you know, m maybe some wisdom if, 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 it's, if God gives it to me. But only you can know what God's will is for your life, and only you can do it. And so we ought to be praying that God would reveal his will to us. We ought to be praying that God would show us the direction that he wants us to go. And I'm not saying that there's no value in counsel. I'm not saying that there's no value in, in advice. I mean, the Bible is very clear about that. In a multitude of counselors, there is safety, right? It's not, it's, it's, it's not to take away from those things, but, but we have to be making sure that we are asking God for his will in our lives. I want the Holy Spirit to just, to just dig deep. And, and help me to figure out, uh, you know, and, and bring those people under conviction. The Holy Spirit's the one that has to do the work. Amen. I'm not going to accomplish anything that the Holy Spirit's not able to do, you know. I, I say that to people all the time when I'm talking with them about things that they come and ask. You know, the Holy Spirit has to do the work in that person's heart. I, I can't do something that the Holy Spirit's not doing. I'll talk to them. I'll try to convince them that they need to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is the one that does that work. And that's what we ought to be praying for. We ought to be praying that the Holy Spirit would do that work and that they would be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And by praying for God's will to be done, what we're doing essentially is yielding sweetly in faith to the circumstances that God brings in our lives. Sometimes God brings circumstances in, in our lives that are not pleasant, that we don't enjoy. But by asking for God's will to be done, we're telling God ultimately that we trust him. You know, trusting God is always, by definition, difficult. Because trust involves placing our lives and our loves into a hand that we can't see. We can't see God. And when I trust him, I'm trusting something completely blind. Right? I don't know. I believe he's there, but I can't see him, so I don't know that he's there. I've seen him do enough work to believe that he is there. I've seen him, I've seen him do enough things in my life and in enough things in other people's lives to believe that, that, that God is there and that God has everything under control. But it's faith. To believe that he's going to do that. And so just the very nature of trusting God means that I'm placing my life into a hand that I can't see. And that's what God wants us to do. That's proving to God that we do trust him. Um, you know, we need to pray that uh, your, your circle of friends, my circle of friends are, are very similar. You know people with 
cancer. You know people with tumors. You know people that are going through surgery. You know somebody that just lost a job. You know somebody that's, that's going through difficult times and, and all of those things. And we need to pray that they'll come to the place of trusting that this is God's will for their life during this time. It's somebody that's not saved doesn't understand that. So as a chaplain, when I go and talk with some of these people, I can't say, well, this is God's will, and you just need to accept it. They don't understand that. I'm trying to get them to the point where they will understand that, but as God's people, we know that this is God working in our lives, and we might not like it, we may not understand it, we, don't, we may never know why until we get to heaven, but this is God's will, and I ought to be praying that God's will will be done. Uh, well, we ought to pray that, that we and others that are going through those difficult things, you know, we have a prayer list full of people that are going through difficult times, and we ought to be praying that they won't become bitter, that they won't become disillusioned at God, that, that their faith would actually be strengthened through that whole thing, and we ought to pray for them to want God's will to be done for their lives more than they want their own will to be done, and we ought to probably pray that same thing for ourselves too, but that's exactly what God is, is talking about when he says, thy will be done. To what extent? Should we pray for God's will to be done in earth as it is in heaven? Turn over to James chapter 4. We're almost done. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Did you ever stop to think about how well the angels um, obey God when he gives them a task? You think they question? You think they, I don't know if that's the best thing to do or not. God, you think you might want to change your mind? You think you might want to reconsider that? No, they don't do that, do they? The angels in heaven just do what God tells them to do. He gives them a job, and they go do it. The question that I have to ask myself, then, is whether or not I do God's will on earth as it's done in heaven. That's what that means. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. God's will in heaven is done immediately. It's done to the best of their ability. And it's done right. Amen. Is God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven? Am I doing God's will the same way that the angels in heaven do God's will? If not, then why not? All that's good praying ground. Now, we've, we have covered pretty much the first half of this prayer. And when we get to that point, then I'm in the proper frame of mind to begin asking the Lord for what I need and what I want. We're not going to get into this tonight, but you notice the next phrase says, give us this day our daily bread. He laid all of that groundwork first, and then he started to ask for the things that he needs and wants and all of those things. And we have to be careful not to, you know, um, not, not in asking the Lord for what we want, but in preparing our hearts to ask the Lord for what we want. James chapter 4 and verse 2 Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your lust. Approaching the Father, as we've talked about thus far, prepares our hearts in the right way to come before Him with our personal petitions. I've reminded myself of my relationship. He's my father. I've reminded myself of, our, of his position. He's in heaven. I've reminded myself of, of the respect that belongs to him. His name is hallowed. I've reminded to put his agenda first. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And after all, doing all of those things, we're not about to pray selfishly. And that's what, setting all, that's, that's what Jesus is doing and setting the table for all of the things that are going to come after this in that prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts and so on. Sounds selfish, but it's not at all. He is praying in God's will because of everything that he had asked leading up to that. He's my father. He wants me to come with my petitions. He's in heaven. He can see the whole picture. His name is hallowed. His name ought to be praised. I want his kingdom to come. I want his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when I've got all of those things in the right place, then all of the rest of them are just going to fall in line where they belong. I'm not going to be asking for things that I shouldn't be asking for. I'm not going to be bringing petitions to him that are, 
that are, you know, that are going to be consumed on my own lusts are things that I can ask God because I've set the table the right way. And my heart is prepared to ask him for the things that he's going to tell us that we should be asking him for. Very important, very important uh, aspect of prayer is establishing who God is and who I am. And when I, when I know who God really is and when I know who I really am, then we have the relationship right that I can ask God for the things that I know are things that he would want me to be asking. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Great prayer to pray this week. Think about it when you kneel to pray. Think about it when you spend your time in your devotions. Are you praying the right way? Should be, so that we can set the table for everything that God wants us to ask after that. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you for giving us this example in the word of God. I thank you for Jesus Christ being the example to us that we should follow his steps and oh, Father, I pray that you would teach us to pray. As the disciples asked so many years ago, teach us to pray. God, I believe that if we pray the way that you want us to pray, our requests would be answered so much faster, so much quicker, and so much more according to your will. And then when the answers do come, we'll be a whole lot more inclined and in tune to accept the answer from you because our hearts are prepared for whatever answer you give us. And God, I pray that you would help us as we try to develop our prayer lives. We do it the way that you want to. and do, do it the way that's pleasing to you. That our request might be answered. Thank you for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, stand at your seats with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. I know a message like this and kind of the message that we've been talking about through this whole sermon on the mount is, is more informative than it is convicting. But maybe you're not praying the way that you should be. Maybe you're not praying at all. If the Holy Spirit's convicted your heart about any of these things that we've talked about tonight, and as the piano plays, the invitation is open and you can come.